0: predictions are dangerous we absolutely need more inventory the fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation that cash has dried up wow is my first thought bruce if both parties don't win it doesn't happen the real look trending news g'day Today's wednesday september 6th i'm bruce hardy and i'm chase williams and this is the news you need to know Real estate giant Anywhere has reached a settlement agreement in two of the major class action antitrust lawsuits facing the housing industry. And according to court documents filed on Tuesday, Anywhere Real Estate and the home sellers suing the firm in both the Merle and Sitzer Burnett cases, which both deal with buyer brokers commissions, have reached a preliminary settlement agreement settling all claims in both cases. Now, before the agreements are finalized, they must be approved by the U.S. District Court judges, both in Illinois and in Missouri, who are overseeing the two lawsuits. No details about either agreement were disclosed in the filings, but attorneys for the plaintiffs in the Sitzer burnett lawsuit told Housing Wire the agreement was for $83.5 million. So uh, what thoughts do you have about this? Well, I don't
1: know, Bruce. This feels like big news. These cases, of course, have been big news and kind of these dark clouds looming, if you will, and and causing lots of concern in the industry and in the real estate agent community, how this will impact how we do business going forward. Will it impact how we do business going forward? And so for one of the largest franchisors anywhere to settle prior to the trial is definitely news, no doubt about that what i would say is a couple things one is there's not a lot of details that have been disclosed for obvious reasons right it's preliminary and details around these settlements are often not disclosed because the party settling wants it just to go away not to offer a whole bunch of information the 83.5 million to put that in perspective that is on the Sitzer Burnett lawsuit according to their attorneys and that's actually the smaller of the two by a pretty wide margin. So damages in that particular case were estimated to be north of $4 billion. So $83.5 million, not quite a quarter of that. The damages in the other case, the moral suit, are expected to reach up to $40 billion. And we have no indication thus far on how much anywhere may have settled that particular case for. Here's kind of the bottom line, Bruce, in terms of how I'm thinking about this. Like it or not, this settlement offers an amount of legitimacy to the claim itself, right? When you have one of the largest franchisors saying, you know what, it's easier and better for us if we just write these huge fat checks and make this go away rather than taking it all the way to trial. Even if they're not admitting that they did anything wrong, they're admitting that this is going to be a challenge for them in their opinion. And so that makes, uh, makes it even maybe a little more scary to the rest of those that are named than maybe it was before. What are your thoughts?
0: I think it was interesting. There was a quote by Steve Berman, the managing partner and co-founder of Hagen's Berman Sobel Shapiro LLP. He said, the monetary settlement was the most that could be obtained in light of Anywhere's available financial resources. Critically, the settlement includes significant changes to Anywhere's practices relating to the conduct that we have challenged. The fact that these attorneys, for want of a better word... I was going to do a different word. Uh, But the fact that these attorneys are sort of braggadocious about, you know, they've leaked to the press what the settlement is, even though there's obviously nobody's wanting to talk about it. It irks me. Let me put it that way. They're looking to get whatever they can, right? As he said, the monetary settlement was the most that could be obtained in light of anywhere's available financial resources. So they're going after the deep pockets and whatever money they can. And unfortunately, this is the nature of the corporate environment that we live in, right? This isn't just limited to real estate. This is every industry and you've got these lawyer trolls. This is how they make their money. And what you know is anywhere was a big part of that SITSA lawsuit, 4 billion. And so far they've collected 83 million. What that tells me is the plaintiffs are going to get scraps. The attorneys are going to make most of the money on this. And I thought it was interesting when this uh, gentleman, for want of a better word, Steve Berman, said our antitrust team looks forward to continuing to pursue additional relief against remaining defendants for those who've been systematically overcharged for simply selling their homes in an already unstable housing market. You know, I got to be honest with you, Chase. I'm a little baffled by this. I think it's a little theatrics, to be quite honest, because this lawsuit is going back to what has been one of the strongest housing markets in the history of this country, right? It's unstable now, and these guys aren't helping it. From my perspective, yeah, it's a big deal. I would be nervous being any of the other defendants in this. We may see a race to get this done. When you threaten, you know, $4 billion and $40 billion, that's pretty scary.
1: Yeah, it is, Bruce. And certainly I think one of the silver linings for anywhere, and this is mentioned in kind of a statement of their attorneys, is that it allows them to gain focus, right? Because it removes them from this uncertainty of the case, the uncertainty of the legal fees and all the things that go with it. So while the rest of the plaintiffs are tied up in, you know, offering their energy to this thing anywhere, along with a big fat check, is able to potentially remove it from their windshield, their field of view, and future uncertainty. So that is a silver lining for them. I'll give them that. But it doesn't make anything easier on the rest of the plaintiffs, given the nature of these things, which are, like you said, to make sure that the attorneys are well paid and likely not sort or solve anything for the end user. I hate to be such a pessimist around these things, but that is typically how they go. The Sitzer-Burnett trial is set for October 16th of this year, so a little over a month away. We'll see what happens with these additional plans between now and then, and then during trial, if they don't all settle. And they don't have a lot of time to
0: do that. Well, and for our listeners, I mean, these two lawsuits take aim at NAR's participation rule, which requires listing agents to make a blanket offer of compensation to buyer's agents in order to list the property on a realtor-affiliated multiple listing service. Now, according to the plaintiffs, commission sharing inflates the cost for consumers in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now, NAR, and I would argue our industry, contends that the current commission structure, which has been in place for over 100 years actually helps consumers. I mean, at the heart of it, chase, that's what this fight is going to be over. Again, the attorneys could care less. They're saying, oh yeah, we've inflated the prices because we're charging commission, but we're actually facilitating deals because we're actually compensating the buyer's agent so they can get a buyer to buy these properties. However, it falls out, there's no doubt in my mind, we're going to see changes in how we transact real estate going forward. No
1: doubt about it. Something of this size will absolutely shape the future of how we go about business, even if nothing wrong has been done.
0: Well, Chase, single-family home building slowed across the country during the second quarter of 2023. And that's thanks to higher mortgage rates and labor and supply shortages still. And that's according to the National Association of Home Builders and their Home Building Geography Index. In fact, the latest HBGI data continues to show a change in geography for home construction, according to Robert Dietz, National Home Builders' chief economist. Multifamily and single-family construction have shifted to lower-density markets with market share gains for those types of markets. And this is especially true for apartment construction, which has seen a segment share decline for large metro areas as development shifts to the suburbs and the exurbs. What do you think about this news?
1: There's a couple of things going on here, Bruce. Obviously, we talk about new construction in the industry as a portion of our pathway out of this challenge we have with low inventory, right? So we keep a close eye on new homes being put in the ground in addition to the resale market. So we don't like to hear that it's declining anywhere in regards to our inventory challenges. And this article seems to point to somewhat of a migration that we might have expected, You've got more construction happening in these kind of lower density rural areas and less happening in these metro areas. I don't think that's a huge surprise if you think about the marketplace that we've experienced over the last few years. More people working remotely, more things happening digitally and by Zoom. We've talked about this challenge for commercial real estate as an example inside of large metro areas. These vacant buildings where a lot of people used to work. And now, guess what? They're virtually commuting from the suburbs or wherever it may be. And so, the housing following that, whatever migration pattern is happening, isn't too big of a surprise. I wonder, too, Bruce, and the article does not speak to it, just to be clear, but I wonder if some of these builders not only following the potential migration of some of the population, but finding easier areas to develop in, right? Oftentimes, you hear of this red tape and the challenges that come along with developing some of these metro areas. I wonder if this isn't an unintended consequence of some of that. What are your thoughts?
0: I would agree with that, Chase. I I think that that's a big part of it. And I think that local government has the greatest opportunity to impact affordable housing, right, with their rules and regulations. And those rules and regs for a lot of our markets have gotten pretty onerous you know, over the years, we've had such a hot market that a lot of those infill lots have been filled. And I think that's forcing builders out of those densely built out areas. And of course, the other part of it is, if the infill lots are gone, then actually now you're having to buy property that already has a structure on it that you have to demolish so that you can go build a new one, right? So the cost of construction goes up. So it would be more effective for them, in in some cases, to go out where they've got land to Actually, go build on. Alicia Huey, the National Association of Home Builders chairman, also believes that single-family construction is actually bottomed out. She said single-family production should register growth in the months ahead as the Federal Reserve nears the end of its tightening cycle and mortgage rates begin to stabilize. So, I think that that's interesting. That you know, she's taking that perspective on this chase. I think just waiting for the market. Right? We hear a lot of this conversation. What's going to happen? When's the Fed going to stop raising rates? When are they going to drop rates? Sort of, to me, it's like a little bit on a wish and a prayer. You know, know, that's not a strategy in my mind to go and drive this business forward. You know how much we love projections on this
1: podcast, Bruce, and that's typically because they're wild ass guesses at best. But who knows, right? Time will tell. The facts are, though, that after rising for the first seven months of the year, the homebuilder confidence actually declined in August. So it dropped six points from July to a reading of 50. Obviously mortgage rates and shortage of construction workers were some of the reasons given. So here you have like seven months of rising confidence. August, it goes down by six points. And you have the chairman saying, oh, this is likely the bottom. And by the way, I hope that's correct. And yet right. it is a
0: prediction. <laughs> and we know how you feel about predictions. <laughs> Over this past week there've been some important numbers have come out. The total non-farm payroll employment actually yeah. increased by 187,000 in August. So that's non-farm payroll jobs, right? These are jobs. They added 187,000 in August and yet the unemployment rate rose to 3.8%. And that's according to the US Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So what thinks you of this?
1: It's not a lot of movement in the unemployment rate, right? A year ago, it was 3.7%. Now it's 3.8%, which is a nominal move upward. And it seems strange to be almost wishing for higher unemployment. And <laughs> Let me explain that, right? No one ever wishes for an individual to be out of work. And yet, when we look at the overall economy, we know unemployment is a key metric that's driving consumer spending, inflation, which therefore influences the cost of money, mortgage rates, et cetera. All these things tie together. We know that anything lower than 4% is historically low, right? We would like to see unemployment rates somewhere between 4 and 6% in terms of a well-balanced economy. And that's a broad statement, I understand. So what it means is that pretty much everyone who wants a job still has a job, and it's barely moved. That's not necessarily good news. I know it sounds funny. Not necessarily good news for what the government's trying to accomplish in the overall economy and slowing down inflation, being able to eventually lower rates, etc. This just shows the strength of the job market and the ineffectiveness thus far, thus far, of some of the actions that the government's taking, right? We know that the lag measures that come after the action may take a little while. We're seeing that in this particular number because it's not being impacted very quickly.
0: No, it's not. And when you think about it, 187,000 new jobs created was actually higher than what the economists were expecting. So you've got this strong job market, and yet unemployment went up a little bit. I've seen a lot of reports, Chase, that uh, predict that, oh, now the Fed's going to pause and maybe stop doing rate increases because of these numbers. But, you know, one month does not a trend make. We have to wait and see. And as you said, I think to put it in perspective versus last year, I mean, the difference between 3.8% unemployment and last year, 37 is not a lot of movement.
1: No, it's not. We've got a long ways to go in a few of these key areas, and it will be interesting to see what the government decides over this last four months or quarter, even coming, you know, here we are in September already, of the year. Also before an election year, a lot of times massive changes tend to grind to a halt during election years. so we'll see if that ends up being a factor or not. But regardless, there's still a lot of work to do for us to get the economy back to a growth rate that would be acceptable to allow for some of these rate hikes to slow or actually return
0: the other way. And we'll be paying attention because the next release of the CPI numbers, the Consumer Price Index numbers, will occur on September 13th. So we'll keep you informed. Well, that's the news you need to know. Don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode where we'll interview Nick Nelson with Keller Williams Realty, Eugene and Springfield in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe to The Real Look and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.